Uh, my name is Luke. If we haven't met yet, I'm excited to teach today. We're going to be in Acts 13. So if you have a Bible or a device that you can flip to, go ahead and go to Acts 13. It's going to be helpful for us today. We've got a lot of people gone um, for traveling and for sickness. So just be praying for your missional community. You could probably look around the room and see who is and who isn't here. Just be praying for them. Um, be praying for people as they travel as well, not just that people get out of sickness and are not sick anymore, but pray for, I, I know I say this every three-day weekend, but pray for people who travel, um, that they are safe getting from A to B. Listen, just like you, I've been following the Texas shooting all week. Um, been devastated by the loss of life, by a pretty big act of evil. Sadly, we've been here before as a society. A dark cloud has kind of hung over the entire week. Maybe it's been that way for you. It has for me. I noticed that after the shooting, and I think I caught it pretty raw when it was just starting, I was a little bit amazed at how quick things moved. It took maybe all four minutes for gears to shift from mourning what had happened to blaming. And I, to some degree, understand why. I think as a society, we are suffering what's called tragedy fatigue. And we just kind of want the madness to stop. We want the problem solved. But how do you fix something like that? What even causes something like that? We can't even agree on that. You just listen to the news for a little bit. I've heard social media blamed, police presence blamed, broken homes, mental illness, video games, prolonged adolescence, racism, lack of red flag registries, not sure what that is yet, school security being an issue, lack of money, Pandemic was used. I've heard that a couple times. I've heard a lot. I've heard a lot of different contributions to why we saw what we saw this week. And likely some of that's at play, right? I mean, certainly there are things that we can do that can be improved. I think most everyone agrees with that. Some things can change for the better. But can I just maybe state something that I find to be very obvious, but also very biblical? This world is always going to have acts of dark evil that refuse explanation. This is just what we're going to see, things like this. When we solve one form of evil, another one's going to sprout up. And listen, we should solve forms of evil. That should be something we do. I mean, we are, we are called to bring dominion, to bring order to what is disordered. We are called to take what is chaotic and bring it into line. We're called to fix things that are broken. Uh, that's from the garden, and it's also in the shape of the gospel and how God has given us good news that actually we walk in the light of. We're called to do that. But you ever f get the feeling that we're always going to be pulling weeds? We pull weeds, we fix that issue, another issue comes. This is going to happen until evil itself is just picked up and heaved into the grave along with sin and death and decay. Until then, even you and me at our very best, we will not be able to recreate paradise on earth. That's not going to happen. Evil will always innovate, right? Evil innovates, and then we respond to it, and then it innovates around that, and then we respond to that, and back and forth, and back and forth. Currently, right now, we have over 300,000 state and federal gun laws, 300,000 state and federal gun laws. I bet we didn't start with that many I bet we started with like four or something like that, right? Not very many. If you have a gun, don't bring it to the restaurant or something like that. I don't know. I don't even pretend to know what the rules were. But somebody broke a rule, right, at some point, and then legislation was passed. And then on and on it goes. So we have 
300,000 now. Listen, there's a lot of things that exist now because evil innovated and then we had to rebound and try to fix it. 30 years ago, we didn't have airport security. I mean, in my lifetime, I remember just walking right up to a plane with whoever felt like coming along, right? We, we didn't have bulletproof backpacks 30 years ago or task forces dedicated to human trafficking. Evil innovates. Paul actually addresses the Roman church. He does a really good job of introducing this letter to the Roman church. Romans 1 and 2 are important chapters in your Bible. But he actually talks about how the unrighteous will invent new ways of committing evil. I find this interesting. Right? This is a little bit fascinating. He says this in Romans 1.29. Stay in Acts if you're in Acts, by the way. But it says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. And this says this, inventors of evil. What does that mean? Inventors of evil. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And this is hard-baked into a society that Paul says is radically in decline. It's coming apart. He says this in the very next verse. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So not only do we invent new ways of evil, we learn how to applaud it really quickly. That which used to be shameful is now celebrated. I think we all see this, right? Whenever you hear a, an older generation, maybe one, two, three generations ahead of you, say something like, back in my time, Back when I was your age, right? It sounds so old, doesn't it? Do you realize you're going to say the same thing? You're going to say the same thing because evil innovates. And if mankind gave it our best, we, we figured out a way to cross the aisle. Let's say there was no aisle. It was unanimous how to fix a problem. And, 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 and very good legislation was passed and it was expertly funded, expertly executed. Everything was perfect. We would just invent a new way of getting around it. There would be more evil come, more weeds to pull. Sounds hopeless, doesn't it? It's very obvious that we left the perfect garden a long time ago. And our hopes to re-enter paradise, it won't be found on the back of our own ingenuity. We need a hero. Weeks like this show us how badly in need we are of a hero to save us from tragedies. Preferably the one who has saved us from the deepest tragedy of all. If you go back and look at the story of the fall, and we talked a lot about the fall last, last week. When you look at the story of the fall, after man was plunged out of Eden, right? There, there was an angel placed at the entrance to the garden, a big angel with a big sword, pretty much saying, you can get back in here, it will cost you your life. It will cost you your life. And we would never be able to get back into that paradise until Christ comes, who virtually, because of the cross, steps into that angel for us to regain you and me entrance into this place called forever, this place called paradise with him. He grants our entrance. So what I'd like to do is just add a solution to the chorus of solutions we're already hearing for school shootings. We need Jesus to be held high, yes, to stop school shootings. We need Christ to be adored, to stop abortions, wars in Europe, sex trafficking, identity fraud, everything you think is vile, everything that we've been able to invent to be more evil than we were yesterday. 
We need Jesus to be held high. And I realize that the prayers are not enough crowd would be very unsatisfied. They hate this kind of a solution. And, and listen, I get it that we need to do tangible things as well. We need to fund our police and resource our resource officers in the schools. That needs to be done. Broken homes need a lot more attention. There's all kinds of things that we can do tangibly, but gospel expansion is undeniably, undeniably the only hope humanity has. Jesus being made famous, Jesus being adored in every land and every tongue, the glory of God himself wrapped up in the person of Christ, exalted in this world, while his spirit roams, finds us, changes our heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. That's, that's really the only hope we have. Without this, we just bicker for years and we pass another 300,000 laws, right? This I do know, the shooter in Texas did not adore Jesus. What if he did though? Even with his broken home, even the fact that he wasn't beloved in his school, even with all of his stuff, what if somebody was discipling him? What if somebody was able to tell him this beautiful story of the gospel in a way that he understood and Jesus became more intoxicating to him? What if that had happened? Because right now in our city, in Knoxville, Tennessee, there are people who float around at the same level of misery that this guy had that fateful day. Right now. In our city. Right now, this morning, people woke up and they're wondering what the point is. How much longer can I go on? That's happening. I was telling Joseph backstage a little bit earlier this morning that when Sandy Hook happened in 2012, I scrapped a sermon. It happened on a Friday. You know, it was 48 hours. It was still raw. It was the largest thing Hard Nation had seen. I spoke directly to the tragedy. I was tempted to do the same thing this week. I think that would be a mistake, though. Acts is, a, is not a history of the church. It's a history of the mission of the church. And the interesting thing is, is it's mission to cities that had their own anxieties, their own evil arguments where nobody could agree. I mean, we have to understand that when we read about this cool story in the, in the book of Acts, these people don't live in a vacuum. When the gospel was brought to bear in these cities that we'll never visit, places like Corinth or Antioch, the gospel was being declared to worried parents and enraged politicians, people who had lost kids and spouses to tragedy. They had their own tragedy fatigue. They were declaring to Jesus, to people who were sexually confused and mentally broken and bored and lonely, everyone and no one had the right answer to their issues. That's the soil that the truth of the gospel fell on in the book of Acts. It's the same soil as today. We have the same thing today. It's no different today. Not, not even 1% different today. So the case I'm going to make is that you are called. When I say you, I'm talking about the church. If you find yourself a person who loves Jesus and call yourself a Christian, you're also a missionary. We say this repeatedly up here. You are called to declare and demonstrate a gospel that is fixed and unbendable, yet in a way of communicating that does flex and does bend. And when people don't respond well, when they reject you, you need to know that that's just part of the package. Not everyone's going to care about what you have to say when it comes to Jesus. But this is where adventure begins. This is where meaning is found. Whenever we are laboring in the Great Commission to make disciples who will do the same. So when we bring Jesus to others, 
we are entering into their fatigue, their story, their circumstances. And we're bringing a message of recovery and renovation. But how we do this is really important. And I think this passage is really helpful. That's why I didn't want to skip it today. So look at Acts 13. And we're going to jump in. I'm going to just walk us through it a little bit just to maybe bring some context out for us. Acts 13. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Very powerful passage. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. Okay. Real quick, we're not going to get into the weeds on this. That's a very diverse board of leaders right there, okay? A couple of them are black. Some of them weren't. Some had connections. Others did not. There's variety in this leadership team. This is going to be important because we're setting in some pastors today, and I'm going to double-click on this then to talk about why that's healthy for us as a people. But let's jump into verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out of the Holy, with the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. And that's talking about Mark right there. Okay, so they're being sent as a team on the very first gospel adventure that was not provoked by persecution. They're playing offense and not defense right now. I mean, in the past, the gospel was spreading, but that's because they're being chased out with whips and rocks and all kinds of stuff. But now they're like, you know what? Let's put a team together that makes sense and let's get them moving. And that's what's happening. And the Holy Spirit was real beautiful and thoughtful for communicating this to the church. And that's what we're seeing. Let's jump into verse six though. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. That just means son of Jesus or son of salvation is how that would be rendered out. It says he was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. Proconsul is just governor. He's governor of this island. It's probably the size of Jamaica. It's not a very big place. But this guy's a man of intelligence, it says, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. <laughs> Listen, I never underestimate Paul's ability to make a thing a thing, right? That's what I always get when I read this. Paul always comes across on paper like a guy I'd like, but I can always tell if I was alive with him, he's the guy that would raise the temperature in a room a little bit faster than you'd be comfortable with, right? When he's all frank like this, I always, I'm a little bit of a peacemaker, so I can imagine someone saying something dumb with him in the room and just in the back of my mind going, 
don't say anything, Paul. Don't say anything, Paul. Let it go, let it go, let it go, let it go. And then he just doesn't let it go. And he goes nuclear and ballistic and it sounds like he's gonna start cussing. And that's what's happening right here. He's not letting it go. But I'm glad for it. I'm glad for it because today, today we don't see so much of this as much as I would like. If we were to take maybe some of today's temperature in mainstream America and maybe port it to this passage, it might sound like, hey, listen, that's your perspective. And this is my perspective. Yours is a little different than mine. I have a truth and you have a truth, but our truths can be alive at the same time in the same room. We could be at peace together. Everything is going to be okay. He does not say that. He says, you're the devil's son. You are the devil's son and now you're going to be blind. And then he's going to wind up for a throat punch if that doesn't work. But he's going to get this guy out of the way because this governor of Cyprus is delighting in the gospel and the magician is getting in the way. So this is what's ironic. A guy that is used to blinding others is now blinded and one of the men that had been blinded by him now has sight. This is one of the first victories of the first mission trip. It's very cool. Look at verse 13. Let's read a couple more. It says, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia and John left them. We're going to talk about that when time comes. And he returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. That's a different Antioch than the one that they had come from. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers... If you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And all this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. He just summed up an an immense chunk of the Old Testament in like four verses, which is very not Paul, right? He usually stretches things out. But he's moving quick here, and we're going to find out why. Verse 21. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, But do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me is coming one, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Okay, this is very helpful. Paul is being caring because he's preaching to these people in a language that they would understand. He's pulling from their vocabulary and their stories and their values and their heroes. He's reaching into their circumstances. We call it context. He's being contextual. That's what that word means. And so what you'll see from this point on in the book of Acts, the church is going to do a pretty good job, especially Paul, of contextualizing the story of God, which is taking the circumstances and the elements of the listener 
in telling the story of God through that filter. We taught a class a long time ago, Kevin Gentry did, where it was on how to preach the gospel in a way like this, where he would say that the best way to preach the gospel is to tell the story of God with your story written in it, with your story inside of it. That's what he means. He's just being contextual, and it's important. My, my years as a campus director in Texas and Florida were largely spent contextualizing the gospel. I'm speaking to students. They're not going through a midlife crisis. They're also not single moms, and they're not about to retire. But they have elements, values, stories, heroes, circumstances. You get this. Contextualization takes a couple things very seriously. This is going to be hard application for this passage today, right? One is it takes listener awareness, and the other is it takes gospel awareness seriously. Listener awareness and gospel awareness Which means this, if you're unaware of the circumstances or the context of the person you're talking to, yet you you get the gospel right, you might still say something very true and it might miss the mark because that's a low cultural IQ, a low listener IQ. But if you have a high listener IQ and you understand the person, a good cultural sense about things, but you have a low gospel IQ, you're also not helpful because you're saying something not helpful or maybe even heretical at that. So you, all, you, you have to have both. You need a good gospel IQ as well. Paul is preaching a fixed gospel with flexible communication. He's doing both. Fixed gospel, not bending, not bowing, it's marching forward, but he's using a flexible way of communicating, meaning he's contextualizing it. And this is expensive to do this. That's, a, that's the most expensive way to be a missionary. Not, not money-wise, but... Comfort, that's the price tag for being this kind of a missionary. I mean, listen, there is a comfort. (laughs) This is maybe me personally. There is a comfort in being accepted by everybody and being ignorant of everybody at the same time. I kind of like it that way. That's what my flesh wants. When I say my flesh, I mean my sin nature, right? The sin in me wants you to like me, but I don't want to know about your drama. (laughs) I don't want to know about your mess, your circumstances, your context. That's less easy, right? I got my own. I don't want to add yours to mine. So if I could stay out of your tragedy and out of your crisis, things are easier for me, right? Listener IQ is expensive. Gospel IQ is expensive as well. To be a comfortable missionary, you're going to have to flip that equation and either be very flexible with the gospel or inflexible with how you communicate it. You have to do the opposite if you want to be comfortable, right? I mean, if you want to be a comfortable missionary and preach a flexible gospel, you need to know it's going to dishonor the Lord, although you might not get rejected here. People might love what you have to say here. This is what you hear whenever you hear someone say, hey, God loves everybody too much to judge anyone. Like, I I know that's a sin, but is it really a sin? I mean, it's pretty old literature. We should reevaluate whether it's a sin because God ultimately wants you to be happy. Listen, you could do that as a missionary. You can extend that, and no one's really going to reject you. You'll be loved, but you'll dishonor the Lord, right? Because you took something that was rigid and not flexible, and you made it flexible. But if you do the other and preach with fixed communication, then the content that you bring, it might be actually really good stuff, but you're going to dishonor the listener. You're dishonoring them. When I was in school for anthropology and for missions, I remember one of our assignments in one of the classes is they played two songs in class. One was, they were both worship songs. Okay, there's the punchline. They're both worship songs. 
One of them were these African, is an African tribe, some part of Africa, I can't remember, but it's like one of those places where they eat each other. Nobody goes there unless your plane breaks down, right? They've never seen white people. It, it was that kind of a place, and they started uh, missional endeavors there, and one of the worship songs was a canoe turned upside down, and they beat on it with stones, and they screamed, and it was horrible, and it still sounded better than some of the Christian music I hear, but it was bad, and I thought, okay, four seconds of this is all we need to get the point, Right? And then they did another one, same tribe, but it was with English lyrics in the Queen's language, some hymn that was dialed in and very accurate. Which one was worship? Which one was worship? That's what it can look like when we are not flexible with the way that we communicate. We have our versions of that here too. Consider the phrase, which is a true phase, don't email me, this is a true phrase, repent and be born again. I'm on board, right? That's, that's, a, that's a good phrase. Let me tell you, there's a giant chunk of your city that doesn't even understand what that means. Repent is the thing that the character on their Netflix show screams. That's a pastor. Anytime there's a pastor on a show, they're always screaming for some reason, and it's always the word repent, right? I guess that's all Hollywood could come up with. But most people don't know what that means. Is it wrong? No, it's not wrong. We probably have to do a better job of explaining what it means, though. But born again. If you, if you don't know about the conversation between Christ and Nicodemus and John, if you don't know about that, what on earth does that mean to be born again? You can't just say it. You have to explain it. You have to explain what it means or else it sounds like you're in a cult. Be born again. What does that even mean? Blood and stuff like that. What does that even mean? That's one of the reasons we came here. Before we came to Knoxville, when me and my wife just drove around the city and asked people, what kind of church do you think Knoxville needs? The people that really wanted to... to maybe get their fingerprints on that conversation would all pretty much say the same thing. Luke, we don't understand what's going on in the church. They say things and they do things and we don't understand. The culture of the church had grown so inflexible in the wrong direction that no one knew what they were walking into anymore. So fixed message, flexible communication. That's what we're seeing here. That's what we're seeing. And that's expensive. By the way, if you want to learn how to do that a little bit better, because I can't get in the weeds on this as much as I'd love to. This is one of my favorite things to talk about. There's a couple blogs on the front page of our website. Just go to LegacyKnoxville.com, scroll all the way to the bottom, and there is one on how well do you know your friend. That's Listener IQ. The other is uh, our best resources and our, our favorite resources on Gospel IQ. That, that'll help you if you're interested in that at all. But look at verse 26. Let's keep marching through this. Verse 26, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found him, they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus also, as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, 
no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. That just, that just means that his body decayed. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about, look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you would not believe even if someone were to tell it to you. Okay, so on top of being very flexible with a fixed message, he's making Jesus unignorable at this point. His listeners are put at the place of decision. They have to make a decision with what's been handed out to them. They can't ignore Jesus anymore. He's saying, you've heard what you've heard. I've proclaimed it. Now do what you do. So, listen, the gospel understood when it's presented before somebody, it requires one of two things, submission or rejection. Either you submit to what God has done through the person of Christ, you submit to the lordship of God, or you reject him entirely. And not everybody's going to love what's being said. Let's look at what it says in verse 41 and we'll see, or 42. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. So that's one response right there. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so when we preach a fixed gospel with fixed communication, we get mixed results. Not all soil is the same. Some beg them to speak more and some wanted to murder them. A few weeks ago, I mentioned that when I was on the college campus, there were times where I was physically threatened, I was spit on, had food thrown on me, drinks thrown on me, and and that sounds horrid, what I didn't get to say at that time, in those same exact settings I saw disciples made. (laughs) Same message, same exact message, just different responses. It's what Vance Havner used to say, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. And the word of God will either humble or harden the human heart. Why is this important, this aspect? Why is this important? Because the rejection you find when you extend the gospel in however way you do, 
It has nothing to do with you. It doesn't have anything to do with you. In fact, if you're being rejected for what you're bringing, you're likely hitting the right notes. Beware when everybody in the room loves what you're saying, right? You might not be so fixed with the gospel. When I first heard about Jesus, he was easy to ignore. I wasn't antagonistic. I was just apathetic. I just didn't care. He was irrelevant to me. I wanted to move on. It was like the, the, uh, the, the story of the sower spreading seed everywhere, some of it landing on rocky soil, some with soil with thorns, some in good soil, some just on a path where birds came and grabbed it. That's what it was for me for a long time, just seed thrown on like a greenway or a driveway or some, something, cement, just bird come and grab it and take off. But eventually, eventually, according to the sovereign timing of God, Jesus was placed before me in a way I could no longer ignore. I was troubled and I was ruined. He was unignorable. The gospel required a response from me. I lost sleep over it. I couldn't unhear what I heard. I sensed adventure. I sensed challenge. I I could see meaning and purpose for the first time. But it was brought by someone who knew my context, knew my circumstances, but wouldn't bend when it came to the gospel. Listen, rejection is not a commentary on you. It's got nothing to do with you. You're bringing both horrible news and great news at the same time. That's what a good gospeler does, a good evangelist. It's the most horrible thing you could ever say to somebody, and it's the most beautiful thing you could ever say to somebody. You're bringing bad news first because you're telling them they can no longer be a god, that they have to submit all the things that they do to make themselves glorious at the foot of a cross and, and, and be covered by blood for something that they did. That's rough news. The good news of it is, is God gives favor to us through the person of Christ, totally despite what we've done. So we don't get what we do deserve, and we do get what we don't deserve, and that's really good news. And they come hand in hand. They come hand in hand. But rejection is promised when you bring a message like that. Jesus says in John, people love darkness because their works are evil. They love it. I'm getting close to landing this here, but this is what I know. This is what I know. Everyone in Knoxville is looking for the same thing, meaning and satisfaction in a tragic world. That's what we're all looking for. And when a shooting happens, it's a reminder that not everything is right. Not everything is right. It's a reminder. And not everything is fixable, by the way. Listen, I hope we do some tangible things to stop school shootings. I still think we'll probably have a school shooting. I I think some things are just unfixable. And this might be one of them. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. But I know what it does remind us of. Things are broken. Things are not as they should be. I think even a lost world would agree with us on that. And on weeks like this, I think we finally see how broken paradise really is. And that the only hope we really have, permanent hope, is in King Jesus ruling and reigning in the hearts of people. Sure, we should improve things. Improve security. Fight for the family unit fund our first responders, so much work for us to do. But the most ambitious thing we can do is to change the city person by person through gospel ministry. That is the most ambitious and most beautiful thing we can do. So we flexibly offer a fixed message so that some would believe. And when we're rejected, sometimes we endure and we keep coming at them with different angles, different opportunities in different moments. And then hear me now, sometimes we shake the dust off our feet. How do you know? That's actually a totally different sermon. The the punchline is, is the Holy Spirit guides us on what that looks like. 
But when you're rejected, ask yourself these two questions. What is it they're rejecting and why are they rejecting it? In asking those questions, you're learning even more about their circumstances and their context. You're crowdsourcing your evangelism. Hey, just ask them. Just ask them. What is it about the Christian gospel that just turns you off? You just can't get your arms around it. It's just a turn off. What is it that is most distasteful for you? And just let them tell you. Let them tell you. You might be shocked. And then flip around and ask them, what part of this gospel message is most intriguing to you? Right? And I think you'll be shocked again. But in doing so, your listener IQ goes through the roof a little bit. It helps you discuss this valuable thing with them. Listen, there's going to be a day, friend, when you were never rejected again. And you will always be comfortable and you will be approved and accepted and loved. And that will be a day when there will be no more shootings, no more blaming, no more infighting. This will be a day when Jesus reigns and rules in paradise returns. But today, today, ask God to show you where you've become inflexible in how you communicate because you just don't want to know that much about the other person. You're fine just throwing a couple pithy statements out there just so you could check the box and say that you're on mission. Where are you inflexible? Where are you not laboring? Where are you not inserting yourself into the other person's tragedy? Ask the Lord to show you. Ask the Lord today to ask you where you are communicating a gospel that has become very flexible and very gooey, very attractive and not very helpful. Ask God to show you where you protect yourself from rejection too. Ask, your God, ask, ask God to help you with this. And listen, if you're watching online or you're here and you're on a journey towards the Lord because you're, you're, you're looking, you're exploring, you're asking questions like this, verse 41 would be helpful for you. He says, look, you scoffers. By the way, this was pulled out of the Old Testament. <coughs> Excuse me. Look, you scoffers. Be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. <coughs> Excuse me. There's a lot going on in that passage, and we can't get into the weeds, but one thing it is saying is God is doing a work that is so incredible, it's actually unbelievable. It's so incredible, it's hard to even believe. That, that we do pick up. It's astounding. And let me just say this, as one who was there, you can't ignore Jesus forever. You can't. You can ignore him now. You can't ignore him forever. There will be a day where his disciples won't shake the dust off of their feet. Christ himself will shake the dust off of his feet. It will be too late. It will be too late. Luke, are you trying to scare us? If that's what it took, I would do it. If that worked, I would do it. That's the bad news of the gospel. That's the bad news. There, there's no version that TV has created where you, you're at the pearly gates, whatever that means, talking to St. Peter. It's always St. Peter, right? You're talking to St. Peter, having a discussion where, where, where they're going to do this, I guess. It will be too late. The dust would have been shaken off of the feet. The good news of the gospel for you, however, is that there's plenty of room at the table. <laughs> We're about to celebrate communion which is a remembrance of what God has done, and it's a portrait of what we're headed to, which is a new banqueting table, a party, where there's bread and there's wine, and there's no more sin, no more decay, shame, sadness. It's all gone. It's all gone. And we are there forever, where every second is better than the second that just came. 
for eternity. And there's plenty of room. You can't be a God, but you could be loved. It's not about you being glorious, but it is about you being satisfied, finally satisfied. 